the uh, intended new SAN cell number two uh, based in Melbourne, which we're hoping to kick off mid-March. Um, the whole point of the SAN group is to get together groups of professionals who've been around the block a few times and who have encountered um, a whole range of challenges and attempted to uh, deal with those challenges uh, over and above whatever they would normally deal with at a technical level as lawyers or accountants or financial planners and the like. Um, one of the reasons for being uh, very pleased to see Ross with us is because he's got many years of experience as a uh, clinical uh, clinical psychologist, uh, as, as a consulting psychologist, and more recently as an educator uh, and as a coach. And my experience, having spent a long time searching for somebody like Ross, um, is that getting people who've got that deeper background in the psychological elements that are, are at play is invaluable when you're sitting there trying to work out what the devil you're going to do with a family group in front of you where you've got a whole range of personalities and there's a degree or maybe a lot of conflict. Uh, there are a lot of challenges and you've got a family which has made a stack of money and really should have the world at their feet and instead they're tearing themselves apart in turmoil and emotional conflict and everything else and they're just not able to move forward on, on any level and they're not happy despite all that material success. So I worked out, I guess, a long, long time ago, there was an awful lot of stuff going on with these families that I didn't understand. I'm not sure I still understand it. Um, but I wanted some points of entry, some areas where I could get hooks and, and a bit of traction so I could begin to open up and explore and work with their non-technical issues so that we could clear enough of a runway so that the technical issues became relatively easy to deal with. And in that context, I certainly observed that working originally, working in Deloitte and EY, seeing some of the female partners who were precisely, as you described, pretty tough cookies, um, and they'd had to fight twice as hard and probably be twice as competent as most of the men to get into the position they were in. We're talking 30 years ago. Um, in a family business environment, I think it's quite different. And you've got uh, very, very broadly two different types of female leader. There's the one who has come out of the corporate world and wants to run her own business in a whole different way because they didn't like what they did in the corporate world. And most of those, I suspect, were pretty tough in the corporate world. They're attempting to create a more friendly, nurturing environment in the family business they've created or are now running or have co-founded. And despite that intent, my experience is that they are frequently regarded or reacted to, that might be a better way of putting it, reacted to differently to a male or with you know, in a leadership role. And my sense is that although their desire is to have a, an empowered, nurturing, friendly, extended family environment. They've got the exact opposite, where everybody, for whatever reason, seems to look to them for the final approval or even for the initiation of anything strategic, anything that's not purely operational. So they end up with a disempowered workplace where they want and often think they've got a highly empowered, highly collaborative, um, highly, um, highly, yeah, highly collaborative workplace. 
And that becomes a real problem when you're looking at succession because succession, obviously, you're looking at transitioning leadership and ownership and uh, management to another generation. And if ultimately the entire leadership team is looking to one person and that person wants to step out and be succeeded, you've got a major problem because you haven't got any real delegation, any delegation of real authority, whatever the job descriptions say. The other type of leader is the one who hasn't come up through the corporate uh, area and they are a founder or a leader of a family business because they've either created the business to feed the family or they've stepped into the role or they've jointly created the role. They don't have the corporate background. They don't seem to have the, the tough shell that uh, a lot of senior female executives seem to have to develop in the corporate world. But I, my observation and part of the reason for wanting to initiate this conversation is that they have a similar problem. Uh, whilst they want to have a nurturing, extended family workplace, they don't end up with that. And the immediate expectation is, well, maybe it's something they've done. But the question I have is, yeah, there's things that you can see that they do, which they might do differently if you could coach them into a different style. But I don't think it's just them. My sense is that there is something coming from the workers male and female, and I'm thinking of one particular business where um, out of 200 staff, over 100 had PhDs. It was a sort of research and uh, laboratory testing facility, and you still had highly intelligent, highly capable people, and they were still, for some reason or another, disempowered when it came to taking strategic initiatives, doing anything seriously innovative, great at doing their day-to-day jobs, but it meant that in both cases, the potential of the business was completely pegged to the personal ceiling of that leader because nobody, it was as though nobody dared to go beyond it. And it's not what they wanted, but it's what they got. So that's the context in which you know I'm saying I'm seeing it and I've gone over 20 years of working with families and I think I've seen it in just about every female-led business, which is extraordinary. Um, and uh, I, I just wonder what's going on, and I haven't been able to find anything anywhere that addresses that issue. Plenty of stuff about how hard it is for females to be in the male, male-dominated world and so on, but, but nothing about that culture. So, Lydian, do you want to um, just uh, jump back in with your, with your question and your comments? Uh, so I'm fascinated by the, the, the issue and the question of women in leadership. I'm relatively new to the family business I have worked in sort of corporate um, investment and in philanthropy environments and work with family offices, some which are the result of, you know, a a crystallisation of a family business, the sale of a family business and so forth. But um, so the family business experience is far newer than the family office or corporate experience. And I'm curious to, I, I put the provocation out there for those of you who are joining us, are there distinct differences in leadership styles of women in family offices or family businesses? You know, are there differences that you guys have discerned in the matriarch versus the patriarch? And I'm curious in the way that family members or people working in those environments are reacting to or are in um, relationship with those leaders as a starting point. Can we identify that there are some similar 
or um, common characteristics based on gender in this space? I believe that's an open question. We're looking for uh, insights from the entire group. Um, I'll throw a comment in there. Um, I've sort of come through all the different types of um, scenarios that you touched on, John, in terms of working in the large corporate space under sort of the more cutthroat style of female leadership and then um, within smaller businesses with more um, what I'll call sort of softer female leaders, um, but then also within my own family's business as well, which I um, am not an active um, role in terms of the running of, but I'm obviously still part of the family and so have a particular role that I play there. Um, so I've, I feel that I've kind of yeah been through all different iterations of it. And just to sort of comment to um, um, back to your comment, Lillian, I think there is a difference between the way that females typically lead compared to males. But to be honest, I think females almost do it on purpose. Um, I think that a lot of females um, are determined to prove that you can be a compassionate leader. Um, and so in some contexts, you know, almost overdo the soft skill side of things because we want to create that collaborative um, feeling environment. We want it to be more of a sort of a, a flat structure as opposed to a hierarchical structure. And we, um, I know certainly in my experience, um, we, we use those soft skills and we encourage that type of environment almost until we start getting a bit frustrated with not getting the result that we want. And that's when some of those, um, you know, more more uh, abrupt behaviors might come in, which has an interesting effect in and of itself. Um, so I, yeah, in my, in my, in my opinion, and in my experience, I think there is a difference between the way that males and females lead, but I think sometimes it's driven through our own sort of agenda sometimes as well. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? Look, I'll jump in, John. Um, I'll provide some context first. Uh, if I go all the way back to when I came into this world quite a long time ago now, we had a reasonably large family business of which I was one of four children, two two girls, two boys. Um, and so if I think about it from the perspective of historically, there was never, ever a conversation that my father, who ran the business and was the chairman of the business, had with all of us at the same time about what our aspirations might be for the business. But at the same time, his view was that females or my sisters were not an option. It was either me or my brother. The fact that I was the oldest of the of the of the boys. I was the one that was picked to be the if you like, the anointed one, if you like. Now, if I then fast forward to today, and over the course of the last fifteen years, where I've been heavily involved with with the investment side of family offices, and still play a significant role behind the scenes in family businesses, I think it's got to do with the environment that's created by the broader family group and the business group that will help dictate the way that all leaders, not just female leaders, but all leaders will will lead and engage with the people that they need to in order to get things done. Um, I've come across in my immediate past role at a large investment advisory business, both what I'd call the best and maybe the not so good traits of female leaders, but I would argue that that is a 
um, an outcome of perhaps they're not feeling supported as female leaders in a very male-dominated workforce. And certainly investment is very male-dominated. And there's plenty of organisations that are trying to change that. Um, so to, Lillian, to Lillian's question, I think a lot of it's got to do with the environment that's created and the support that the individual female leader feels that she needs and maybe what she's getting versus what she's not getting as to what the way that that will um, then lead to the way that that particular individual leads. And a classic example, um, I was in a, a leadership team meeting in 2016. There was 10 of us around the table uh, the chief operating officer of this particular business, who, who was a woman, um, uh, we questioned her around some specific issues that we had with respect to the way something was being done. Now, the response that we got was surprising um, because it was extraordinarily aggressive and um, not something that we would necessarily have expected. Now, I've learned that you need to understand what's going on behind the scenes as to reason why someone would respond like that. But a long-winding way of saying, I think it's very contextual around the environment that is created, which allows and empowers any executive, whether it be male or female, um, to do what they need to do. And if, if I was talking with, a, I met with a family office yesterday about a specific investment opportunity in renewables energy space and you know, this family office is run by a female. Female is the major shareholder. She's the most delightful person, but when she needs to maybe um, put the foot down or or provide a level of um, accountability to people, she's happy to do it. Sorry, she, uh, could you repeat the last? If she needs to essentially put her foot down, um, and take, ask people to be accountable for certain things and take them to task, she will, but she does it in a very, what I would call disarming way, which allows the individuals to feel like they're not being, you know, victimised or beaten up. They're actually being asked to explain something in a way that's maybe not always the case in, in a male leadership type scenario. Okay. I think I've done all the talking I need to do for the remainder of the night. <laughs> no, it's good. Thank you for that contribution. Um, you say, It sounds like you're describing businesses where the family has a lot of influence over the business. Um, my experience is more where the female leader is de facto pretty much leader of the family as well. So they get the environment they create. They're not coming into an environment which is capable of controlling them because they've more or less generated the environment for themselves. And one of the challenges they've often got is that the, uh, the demands of leading the business overflow into all sorts of guilts about what is, what is not working as well as it could in the family. And then you've got a bit of a perfect storm developing because there's challenges in the business and guilts uh, and problems in the family, and sometimes the one is used as a sop for the other, and, and it becomes a terrible brouhaha. 
Anybody else come across that sort of environment? Yeah, I'd say that's probably quite true of um, any family business whereby the head of that family business is um, is a female. I think there would be a much um, greater tendency for the line to be blurred between business and family. Mm. Um, I, and I think that a lot of that would occur because oftentimes if it's more of a, um, if the male is the head of the business um, in the family context, then the, the female often acts as the mediator or the you know the peacekeeper and and the go between to make sure that there is more of a um, clearly defined line between business and family. So, where that role is held by you know whether where the mother figure is heading up both the business and the family, um, I think it would blur more readily, create the perfect storm as you mentioned. Yes, can be a challenge. Hmm. Oh, yeah, I'll also jump in there because I agree entirely. I mean. Family businesses tend to bring, bring the sort of the unstated rules and, and structures of the family of origin into the business, uh, and often mum's the custodian of the emotional well-being of the family. And I can think of two families that John and I have worked with where dad sacked uh, a sibling, uh, sacked a child, on the basis that they were incompetent, so of course they got sacked. Um, and in both cases, mothers were outraged, don't you understand that this is your child? Um and, and, and the, the, the tension was, of course, around what's good for business and what's good for family. And uh, it really needs to be a whole reworking of you know, the, um, the the way we're going to work as a you know, recontracting the relationships before we get into the business, because it's just sliding one to the other doesn't seem to work. So we've been doing quite a bit of work looking at at this, the, the values, the personalities, the behaviours under stress, get a real sense of. In this new environment, we're going to incubate the worst of the family and possibly the best of the family. How will you deal with it? How will you have those conversations? How will you not suddenly have dad walk in and say, you're hopeless and, and out the door? I haven't done as much work with women as the mum as the boss, but more the mum as the emotional heartbeat of the of the business and, uh, and being outraged by dad or the, or the reaction of the kids. And um, again, in my experience, which has been a few years now, Family businesses are not very healthy for families unless you do a lot of work before they get before they get there. In other contexts, I do a lot of work with defence, military, and the public sector. And women in that role who aren't there as a mum, who are there as a professional, are similar to the to the men. They're they're, they're the sharp, they're smart. They do try and bring in things like compassion and kindness and empathy, but they can be as tough as as is required. In fact, I had one woman as a coach. And I said, would you talk to your kids the way you talk to your staff? She said, of course not. They're not my kids. I don't have to think about it. So she had a lovely sort of division between I leave home, I'm an executive, I get home, the suit comes off and, you know, I, I become mum again. But So, Ross, is she nicer to her kids or her employees? <laughs> to the kids, much nicer to the kids. <clears throat> much more much more subjective with the kids than she was with the staff. Right. In fact, she was almost too tough. I just have to share this insight that I got from a family, a new family that I've I just started working with literally in January. We did the first kind of family values um, workshop. Dad runs the family business, which is, you know, the the two of the three um, kids are in the business and the mum runs the family office. So she runs the, the PAF and the investments. And, you know, they were trying to think of, you know, a statement that encapsulates what they want to do. And she was one that said at the end of the day, I wish we, I wish our, uh, we could say that um, we're in the business of family as much as we are a family business, because then we would, 
use the same structures in focusing on making sure everyone is heard because that was something that came up again and again, who gets a say, who gets a vote. You know, equity is not being, you know, equal necessarily at all times. And I just thought that's really, that's so true, the business of a family as opposed to a family business. Like, yeah, I'm going to write that down and come back to you with something on that. <laughs> well, one of the um, <clears throat> one of the terms of art we adopted some years ago in the space where we would started off talking about family business and then we got to family in business um, and the Americans have got family enterprise and increasingly we're talking about business families because behind every family business there must by definition be a business family. And the best practice model um, that Ross and I promote through Family Business Institute is one which separates family from business, but has very similar, very similar structures in each, with a completely different set of rules, of course, because what you need in family is different to what you need in a business. But to have a board of directors for the family, call it a family council, but you've got a body that's got ultimate authority that sets the plans and follows through the rules. You've got the same sort of thing in a business because you need a structure to set the plans and carry out the rules. So you, you create in the process of trying to get them sorted, you disentangle the bowl of spaghetti at the beginning and send them off down different paths. You get some clarity into their uh, planning, relationships, visions, goals, processes. You do a set which are appropriate to the family, a set which are appropriate to the business. In the process of doing that, you try to uh, try to unravel any problems that have developed or have been throbbing away under the surface. And then ultimately, you can bring them back together again as mutually supportive. But you always have to make sure everybody's clear, whether you're wearing a business hat or a family hat, if you're in a position of any authority in, in both uh, environments. So you know, what your family has come to is precisely what we would call the essence of best practice at the moment. Mm. Um, question I've got is a lot of the a lot of the female-led businesses, in fact, probably all of the female-led businesses that I've seen. Um, I think if you do a serious trust analysis, they are actually very low trust environments remarkably low trust environments. And the belief and the expectation of the leaders and the employees is that we are a high trust environment because we're a family business and we're nurturing, we make all the noises about nurturing and so on. But when you actually hold the mirror up to what they're doing and you look at the degree of quite often micromanagement and uh, excessive control, which ultimately leads to that sort of disempowerment, the only conclusion you can come to is that you know, the, the, uh, the smiling, friendly person at the front actually doesn't trust anyone an inch. And that's why they've learned to not do anything without a careful tick-off because, um, you know, that lovely smiling mama uh, bites your head off if you don't actually do what she wanted you to do. And they've learned to respond and to be careful about that. Have other people found that? And I, I, I'm referring to uh, uh, experiences as recent as today. I had a bit of a crisis meeting with a family I've been working with for a few years. And we had exactly this, that the former 
very senior corporate CEO, now in a family business for 10 years, very corporate approach, wants to be anything but a corporate approach, and ultimately can't with about to leave for nine months over overland travel um, with her partner who's you know, the co-owner of the business. And despite the fact of saying to them, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to delegate, you've got to get stuff out, we're finding ourselves three weeks before they're leaving having to have a crisis meeting and saying, we need a whiteboard, we need to work out what the hell's going on in the business. And I want names beside each person because I've got to chair the advisory board while you're away. I need names behind each person who is accountable because at the moment nobody is accountable because you and your partner always swoop in and take responsibility. So it's a bit like you know a bunch of bunch of um, you know you expect teenage kids to drop their underwear and leave it on the floor, but you don't expect forty and fifty year olds to do it. But I know that when I used to go back home, I was likely to drop my underwear on the floor and let mum pick it up. It, it was bizarre. You looked at it, thought, "What the hell's going on here?" So, uh, is there anything in that, or am I just seeing things which are um, <laughs> by confirmation bias of some sort? I certainly have as well, and I think at the end of the day, a lot of this comes down to just um, you know ability as a leader, as in, in its in and of itself. Mm. So, you know, your your abilities with communication, your, you know, the willingness to have a difficult conversation, the ability to empower people, all of these different things apply equally to males as they do to females. Mm-hmm. Um, I do I do think that there are differences in the way that um certain females may have a tendency towards encouraging particular types of in, environments um with very good intentions. Um, but I think personally I I actually prefer a hierarchical structure within a business. I think it gives people something to aspire to. It gives them a point, you know, call to go to as well. Um, I don't really think flat structures work very well. Um, and I've had, you know, I've been exposed to both um, under both male and female leadership and, and therefore I'm sort of not pegging it to a male or a female as such, but more so just the actual business environment that you're in. Um, but I do, I, I do think naturally, um, you know, there is a, there is a bit more of a tendency to to strive for those more sort of nurturing and um, you know everyone's part of the team type of environments um, when it's led by a female and it's just um, part of our um, DNA or our makeup I suppose um, but it's certainly not to be said that males don't do the same and it has the same impact um, but yes I understand what you're saying but I also John I understand where your email's driving from in the same token too. Thank you. Christina, will you, um, <clears throat> do you have a uh, an, another observation other than comments you've already made to uh, add oh. add to the conversation? I mean, look, I think it's a, um, I think it's a very interesting topic. Um, to to be completely honest, I'm not a hugely feminist person in and of myself. Um, I just come from the mantra of I'll play the refs game, so I'm going to do the best I can in whatever environment I'm in. Um, and then I, I do think that a lot of females have a particular skill set that we can actually use to our advantage. It doesn't need to be a disadvantage. And we have, um, you know, we have certain abilities in, in communication and in reading others and in, in the way that we can build relationships with others that, um, to be honest, I think we do better than men. Um, so it's it's to me it's about how do we help people how do we help females to um you know embrace that and and create their own path and be the type of leader that they want to be whatever that looks like for them um but I mean I think 
in, in leadership as a whole, there's so much work to be done because there's certainly many, many poor examples of leadership around, unfortunately. Well, I mean, you actually, you see it every day in decisions that are made by both publicly listed and private companies with respect to scandals that go on and um, all sorts of things that have been covered in the press for, you know, for eons. I mean, I think it, this comes back, and you'll think I'm all a bit, I'm a bit strange with what I'm about to say, but if you go back to the Australian cricket team that, that had the issue in Cape Town a couple of years ago, one of the things which I don't believe people will do very well in corporate Australia is that high performers end up in leadership positions. They might be really good at functional areas of the business, might be great at sales, they might be great at marketing, whatever it is, but they haven't actually trained to lead. Um, and it's a heart and head type role that you have to play when you lead people. Um, and I think that, to my mind, Steve Smith was the best player. He probably arguably still is the best player, but was he the best leader? Um, and what sort of support did he have around him when the proverbial was about to hit the fan in that change room when decisions were made which have impacted their lives forever? And so I think one of the things which also needs to be highlighted is the fact that leaders, you know, they say leaders are born, not made. Um, I would argue that that depends on the context because a leader of a football team or a cricket team or a sporting organisation when they're on the field is very different to the leader of a organisation where the conversations you have on a day-to-day -day basis with people cannot be as robust as you might have when you're in the heat of the moment on the field of play. Uh, and certainly from the perspective of me being in a situation some years ago with uh, an employer who was a lot younger than me, uh, what I learned very quickly um, was that in those situations as a leader, you need to have someone else in the room with you when you are providing feedback on performance um, and providing what one would construe as positive feedback, being the person who's providing it, whereas the person who's, the person who's receiving the feedback may have the completely opposite reaction. And so it's a, I think the one thing which comes across just listening to what people are saying is that corporate Australia need to focus on helping leaders be good leaders by teaching them how. And to Christina's point, um, there's not a lot of great role models out there. When it comes to corporate Australia, you can point to and go, this person is the benchmark of leaders in, in business in the country. You only look at our politicians and the way that they conduct themselves in parliament to work out where well, you're not going to necessarily aspire to be one of those. So, yeah, there's a lot more work that we can do for both men and women when it comes to how that they lead, notwithstanding whether it's in a family business context or in a normal business context. And I mean that tongue in cheek, having been brought up and lived in a family business all along. <laughs> Can I respond to that, Ed? Um, just, I think you, you make a really good point about um, who's the right person to lead an organisation. And I've, in my experience, 
corporate organisations, you know, things that are not family-led, whether it's family office or family business, it's obviously the best, well, most of the time Mm. it's the best person for the role and and there are leaders who are interested in building culture that supports high performance, whereas if it's a family business or a family office, there's not the same luxuries. It's the person, you know, it's mum or dad or matriarch or patriarch who leads I find it's a much more challenging conversation to have with a leader of a family office to say, maybe we should bring in some people to to help change the culture, lift the culture, improve the culture. So, you know, it's it's leadership by default in some of those organisations um, as opposed to, you know, we know it's never just a meritocracy, but at least it's, you know, someone coming up through the ranks and at least having to prove themselves to a certain extent. So I think that's a really interesting conversation around who should be you know, who should be in the leadership role. And, you know, last year I worked with a number of different um, early stage businesses and startups. And again, this is something that I'm sure you're all familiar with, the founder of a business. When when should the founder step aside? Um, the person who's put the most time, the most money, the most effort, not necessarily the best person to actually lead the organisation and how to have those conversations. And so this is, and this is the, the superb um characteristic and challenge of family business and that's this the emotional side of things um and john and i have spent you know we've had lots of conversations over the years about the emotional side of family business which can then cloud all of the other things that you do that might make you a really effective leader or a an ineffective leader because you've got it's very difficult to separate the two as much as putting in family constitutions and and all the rest of it when it comes to business and family and and splitting them. But, you know, when you're going home and lying next to one of your stakeholders who's got nothing to do with the business on a day-to-day basis, but they've got everything to do with the business outside of the day-to-day basis, if that that makes Mm. sense. Yeah. And, I mean, I've got, you know, sorry, just quickly, Scott, our family business after 120 years shut down a couple of years ago and we made that happen. That wasn't something that we we didn't choose to do. Um, but my mother, God bless her, um, still has a crack at me from time to time about why didn't you stay in the business longer and if you were running it, it would still be going. So, you know, that's the emotional side coming into it. I had a lovely experience last week when I was thinking about this phone call this week was that in Fitzpatrick's group, you know, three of the top four positions, CEO, uh, CFO and head of HR, uh, uh, ladies, women, very strong, great leadership skills, incredible listening skills, uh, very articulate uh, and a a pleasure to deal with them. and uh, and then on the weekend, I was with my cousins who are very frustrated. They they're two ladies, uh, two 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 sisters, in a partnership running three or four bookshops, and they're very frustrated with each other, and 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 they're very actually they're frustrated with themselves about the frustration they're having in running this business and not being able to have the difficult conversations. And so they're beating themselves up. And I'm going, well, what leadership training have you had? And they go, well, I've had none. Uh, It was on the run. We decided to get into this business. Did you have any conversations? I love what you said before, Ross, about before you got into business. Was there anything about what communication style, what, you know, verbal contracts have we got? 
Uh, what's the what, what's the culture we want to create in this business? No, we had none of that. Uh, do you have monthly board meetings? No, we do it on the fly. Uh, is there a forum for grievances? No, we just get pissed with each other and have three bowls of red wine and you know start yelling at each other. Okay. And uh, it was it was not to say that that's a female issue. It was just an interesting two different you know ones come through institutional now running a you know our, our corporate business. And the other is the problems we're all talking about is within family business uh, that possibly that need for support or some sort of sounding board um, to help them get through what may be the elephants on the table. And that's that rub of family business versus business family. Yeah, and as you say, the sounding board is an interesting one because um, when you're in that situation where you objectively from the outside are able to get a sense of what's going on, you can raise the questions respectfully about this is the state of the business, this is what it needs, and this is what you've got, so how do we close the gap? And one of the things we were talking about today with our crowd is we talked two years ago about putting training programs in place for the managers and life got in the way you haven't done it and now you need to pass responsibility. You've got a bunch of managers who are still not adequately trained. So they're going to need more professional support just to be able to do the job that they should have been lifted to do because the other two, the owners, are stepping out and a lot of the corporate uh, knowledge and experience is gone. That's where the, the objective external support uh, can become so important, I think. Uh, yeah, I wanted to uh, perhaps bring the conversation back because the leadership starts out that leadership conversation, the, the Peter principle being alive and well, all that type of thing. Um, I think that's a subject for another conversation and it's an important one because uh, a, a lot hangs off it. Um, but I'd like to bring it back, if I could, to the to our area of discussion today, which is about things like low trust environments and how does a very capable leader with a very clear idea of, of the culture that they want to build end up with something that's almost the opposite? Why does that happen? Ross, do you have uh, any thoughts from a site? Oh, I just like that the Lencioni model, model of the dysfunctions of teams, I mean, it all comes back to trust and, and trust being the conversations we need to have so I can be vulnerable with you and you can be vulnerable with me. I can tell you my truth. I can hear your truth. And that way we can have disagreements and we can argy-bargy and do that sort of stuff. So it really is contracting a trust relationship as a foundation. Now, my recollection of my mother was her telling me that mothers know everything and mothers are never wrong. I do remember that clearly. Yeah. Does that get imprinted in male and female children at a young age and then get taken up into the workplace, do you think? Absolutely. You bring your family of origin with you. Because if that's true, then that would, to my mind, militate against trust a little bit because if you've got an all-powerful, all-knowing um, leader, you might feel too vulnerable when they appear to be impregnable. That's probably a bad choice of words. <laughs> um, if, if they appear to be invulnerable, um, then maybe the gap is too big to allow that vulnerability. 
I, I'm just, as I say, I'm, I'm just referring back to what I mentioned earlier on, which is a lot of the female leaders that I have worked with have really worked hard to create a nurturing, high-trust, family-like environment, and they seem to have got anything but. People don't trust themselves. They wait for direction. They can do it, but that somehow there is a low trust working environment in the business, so which then militates against the effectiveness of the team, which then militates against the effectiveness of the business. So you know, I, I'm just keen whether other people have observed that, whether they have any thoughts about that. It seems to me that if it's a thing then there are some real opportunities to develop some coaching support for some of these female leaders to help them recognise the reality of what's going on because the guys that I'm dealing with are super frustrated. The stuff they're putting in place just isn't flying and they can't work out why. And it's fundamentally because people just, they're agreeing, but they're not doing. One of the reasons they've got a problem is because when you analyse what's going on, they're pretty bad at making and keeping to decisions because they don't have a process and they don't have a discipline. So a decision made is not necessarily a decision kept and golden rule applies. He who holds the gold makes the rules and you know, proprietors and so on in particular go off and do their own thing irrespective. But this is where you can you can deal with that just by putting a bit of discipline structure into the family. And uh, I find myself with virtually every family now, um, they can be turning over half a billion dollars, but they can't make a collective decision to save their lives. So one of the first things you do is just a half-day workshop on decision-making, which when you first start doing it, first time probably 20 years ago, it felt like an insult to everyone's intelligence and he thought you get run out of the room and run out of the room on a rail. But the reality is when you boil down how do we make decisions, how do we keep to decisions, how do we implement them, um, people will tell you we don't do this well because we simply don't honour decisions or we don't carry them out. So putting in a process and getting a commitment from everybody and invariably you get somebody who volunteers to be the process Nazi afterwards means you can put in, as well as Ross was saying before, the ground rules, some basic processes for some critical things. And what seems like an innocent problem, you know, we're not great at keeping to decisions, actually is a major canker to the business culture, and you can fix it with a three-hour workshop, I think is extraordinary. I mean, it's obviously then got to be implemented, but the, for, for so many of these things, when you break them down, the my experience anyway, has been that the working solution is really not difficult. But, um, but John, picking up your point about, oh, well, A, what you just ended with, that the working solution is not that difficult, but bringing it back to what you started with, which is trust, I think that leaders have to model that and it doesn't matter what they say. If they don't, if they don't walk, you know, walk the talk, people call bullshit straight away. The amount of CEOs who say, I want high trust in the organisation and Right, okay, and there's no transparency around the most basic things, around salaries mm. or decision-making. or So the solution is really easy. Share what everyone's making. You, you, I mean, you know what the reaction of most CEOs would be to something like that. So the solutions might be clear. It's whether or not the CEOs have the, the stomach to, to model sometimes hard Solutions. Yeah, there's a lot of truth in the family context for a second. And so we bring this back 
I'm dealing, I'm in the process of talking to a family about helping them develop a succession planning process, which will see the children at some point in time become actively involved as executives within the 50-year-old family business. And this is interesting. What I'm about to say here is I think comes back to trust and the the invisible influence, I won't say outsiders because they're part of the family, but they are um, they have outside influence because of who they are and the position they hold. In this particular context, it's the matriarch of the family who I don't believe understands the influence she wields because of the the comments that her husband and the leader of the firm makes in certain situations about, well, I actually can't do that until I've spoken with my wife about that. Now, that is that is where the lines are completely blurred. Yep. And even to the point where the response I got today from an email just proposing a conversation around the process that we would naturally go through as part of this succession planning was that I need to speak with my wife first. She gets the idea of doing it, but she's worried about the cost. Now, this is a business that's generating, you know, solid seven figures in revenues, um, is making solid profit, and there is this permutation of concern around money that goes all the way through the organisation from employing an outsider as a CEO, you know, a non-bloodline as a CEO, all the way through to in the context of the revenue line of the business, a rounding error when it comes to an investment in this component of the organisation, which will pay off for decades if they get it right, and if they don't get it right, it will destroy them for decades and it'll cost them a ton of money. And so I'm interested in the in the my question is have you experienced the a, a negative influence from someone who's within the family but not in the business, but impacts the business in a way that might lead back to this whole issue of trust? Yeah, of course. And it's because it's not properly structured. You haven't got a separate decision-making body for the family and another one for the business. Um, but it's worth coming back, if we could, to um, we could return to the question. But, yeah, I mean, what you're saying, Ed, is common, and one of the first things you have to do is that that's, that's what we would say is at the threshold of the whole best practice process, and it's called the zone of confusion, where you've got uh, the dining table being used as a boardroom table and vice versa, and there's a complete mishmash of thinking. You've got family thinking in the business, business, some business thinking in the family, and the whole thing's a complete schmozzle is a technical expression for it. Um, but can we just jump back a moment to the conversation about trust earlier on? The One of the problems there, and I suppose it's all part of the same equation, one of the problems there, I think, is everybody talks about trust and everybody thinks they know what it means. But if the group itself doesn't have a common language and a common understanding and a common commitment, it's just words in the breeze. 
So this is where the education piece comes in, interesting, interestingly, where if you do a workshop on trust, what builds it, what destroys it, how to maintain it, what are the key elements and so on, what you're beginning to do is create a common language, common understanding in the group, and it can be a family group, it can be a mixed family and employee group, um, and then you've actually got some workable base to work from. When people just talk about trust, like I put in our conversation today, we, we ended up having a divert into the question of trust, and I threw the Maester trust equation up on the board, which nobody in the room had ever seen before, which really blew me blew me away, to be honest. Um, and when you just boil it down to the four elements that they talk about, it becomes a very easily understood thing, and you could then in 10 minutes talk about how you could apply it and how to utilise it. It takes a few hours to work it all through. But we make a lot of assumptions that when we talk about trust and, you know, this should be a high-trust environment, this is one of the problems. It's a you know family business, therefore it's a high-trust environment because it's a family-type orientation and that means we, you know, we love and nurture and support everybody. A lot of families that I've come across are could not be described as loving environments. And people will talk about, yeah, of course we love each other, and when you then say, at risk of getting thrown out of the room, can you give me some examples of how you interact and how that works? And then you say, well, you said love looks like this, but you said how you behave looks like that. So do we need to reconsider some of the earlier comments? It can get a very frosty reception because people work on the assumption we're family, therefore it's a loving environment, therefore it's a trust environment. And it ain't. It simply is not. Yeah. Can I just make one comment, John? Very, very simplistic. Speaks to your highly technical term that you just used just now. Um, look, it's common knowledge. Uh, I don't know um, how many of you will agree with me, but it is common knowledge that there's a high level of dysfunction in most families. <laughs> and uh, to get the exceptionally perfect family is you know, no comment. Therefore, if you then couple that high dysfunction into a business, family business environment, I think schmuzzle is a really good technical term. So that that inherent challenge, which, I mean, people have put together corporate environments for a long time based on all sorts of models and whatnot, but this particular aspect is highly technical and very difficult to deal with. And hence, you've got your multitude of every type of advisor that comes in from every direction. But isn't that like a fundamental aspect? Very much so. <clears throat> I start most of my talks these days about family business with the uh, proposition that family business makes no sense. Mm. It's an oxymoron. Family business is an oxymoron yeah. up there with military intelligence. Um, if you look at all the elements of what makes a successful business, they're in direct contradiction to what makes a successful family. But if you go through history and if you believe the stats, there are more fam far more family businesses in the world than any other sort of business. And they, uh, it's a massive segment and people have been doing it since, you know, Adam and Eve just about. Um, and they're going to continue to do it. And, you know, some parts of the world, Italy, Germany, and so on, you're talking over 90% of all businesses, of family-owned businesses. So the, the, so the challenge is, and, and when they get it right, I mean, they're extraordinary places to be. 
but the majority struggle to get it right. And the whole idea of family business best practice is we've got a pretty good idea these days of what works and what doesn't work. So we can tell you what to avoid doing. We can tell you what to do. And if you break it down, there are a lot of relatively simple things like let's have a common language and a committed process for making decisions. So all the conflict you've had for the last 40 years about people breaking promises becomes a thing of the past. Every decision in future is handled in this way. The ground rules are once the decision is made, you have to stick with that decision or there are consequences for failing to to support the decision that's made, even if you don't agree with it. Gets over a lot of those problems that you're talking about earlier on. It doesn't take a long time to work people through that stuff. And it's a building process in the same way that to try and grow a functional family, you introduce rules, manners, behaviours, rituals, all that type of stuff. You have a version of it in a business. And if you're a business family, so you've got that schmozzle of being an emotional unit, a social unit, which is also tied in with a commercial unit, even more need to have some rules that make it clear how what works, what doesn't work, what to do, what not to do, and who's going to do it. So it's not when you said it's a highly technical, I, I don't think it's highly technical. I think it's highly emotional. Uh, but there is a lot. There, there's a lot of stuff to be done. But all of the bits are quite easy. There, there's nothing incredibly complicated. <laughs> Just your term was highly technical, John. <laughs> oh my <laughs> term. Absolutely. It's like my broken wing syndrome and a few other things that I've uh, invented over the years because nobody else got there first. <laughs> Ross, I feel a comment coming on. No, no, I must agree with all that. I was just thinking again about the Meister's Trust equation. For those in the, in the group who don't know, I mean, it's it's a very simple equation. Equation T equals C plus R plus I divided by SI. And the C is credibility, R is reliability, and I is intimacy, like a relationship. And it's completely divided by self-interest. So you can be all the things you say you are and you can be the, But if you're only about you and not about us, you destroy trust. Um, and we found that's a very useful equation. That, uh, I, are you I, here for me or are you here for, you're here for us? I, I put that on the board today because the, the, this business was talking about um, their triangle and everybody has to win, um, the, the vendors, the purchasers, and us, the business, we have to win. I said, well, another way of looking at that, and I gave them the trust equation and I showed them you know, you can score 10, 10, 10 on all the top line trust. You can have great reputation, great performance, great intimacy. But if you also appear to be in it for the money, so you get a 10, your total score is three. Whereas if you're totally, but if you, but if you have come across, I'm not in it for the money. I know I, if you convey the idea, I want you to get the best possible outcome and I'll get paid what it's worth, but it's not really my primary concern. You can score 30. I mean, nobody ever does, but you can score there. And on the basis of that, which took a whole five minutes, they've actually changed their business model and they've taken themselves out of the equation, restated their uh, their mission statement, and they've now got something to take back to staff and, and actually reposition themselves in their messages to the marketplace. We've moved from supply-driven to demand, and it was just an extraordinarily quick process. And that's part of your sounding board type value, I suppose. But this is where the the idea of trust, that everyone's talking about trust, no one could really define it. Nobody really 
could say, this is how you build it, this is how you lose it. People say it takes years to build trust, seconds to destroy it. It's rubbish. You, you can build trust extraordinarily quickly. You can also destroy it extraordinarily quickly. You just simply know how to do it. And most people haven't had proper training in doing it, and it's not complicated stuff. Well, I think the thing is just that, um, and the lawyers in the room will probably yell at me for saying this, but you have my view is that you have to come to relationships when you meet people from a position of trust first. If you if you were like one of my um, relations, who highly intelligent, um, but it's almost like you have to prove the trust so he trusts you before he trusts you. And to my mind, that's not a great way to live your life. If you want, you know, because I'll trust anybody who I meet until they've proven that I shouldn't trust them, not prove to me that I'll trust you, then I'll trust you because there might not be a time when they can do that or there might not be a context or an opportunity, if that makes sense. So I think a lot of it's got to do with the mindset of the individuals um, and the individual themselves by almost providing trust openly to the other person first because if there's times when someone might say, well, you know, I was chatting to Joe Bloggs the other day who's your manager and, you know, he, he was saying to me that, you know, you were doing X and Y. Immediately that's going to put that person where that the other person's not going to trust that individual because they're talking behind their back. And so come from a always come from a position of trust first um, and make sure that you you demonstrate that so people will come to the position of you as well. It reminds me um, of a, a quote from an extremely credible source, which is SpongeBob SquarePants and um, Patrick the Starfish, um, where SpongeBob says, what if I break your trust someday? And Patrick responds, trusting you is my decision and proving me wrong is your choice. So I completely agree where it's, you know, I I, I come from that approach as well, which I'm, I am a lawyer, so I won't tell you um, but, you know, trust is something that's, to me, why not trust someone first? And then if they choose to break that trust, that's their decision and they make that accordingly. Um, but, yeah, I couldn't help but be reminded of SpongeBob there. But if you go into that complex family <laughs> business environment, um, the, the, the assumption of what can happen and what people understand is a dangerous thing. In a corporate environment, there tends to be a standardised corporate language, standardised processes, uh, embedded disciplines and so forth. Families are the, the almost precise opposite. They tend to be very informal. And one of the things that I think is, is very powerful with a business family is teaching some of the fundamental, and there aren't an awful lot of things you need to do, but Problem solving, decision making, um, working with trust, teamwork, those sorts of things can be taught as skills. They can be given as knowledge, taught as skills. It creates um, an underlying consistent language and expectations which you can then hold people to and work to. 
families tend to, and this is, I think, why a lot of family businesses get in so much trouble, the assumption is we're a loving environment so it'll all be fine. We can all trust each other, do the right thing by each other all the time. It doesn't work out. People feel betrayed. And then it's on for young and old. And that, I think, is why we so often get into so many difficulties because we make assumptions because, it's frankly, it's an easy, lazy way out rather than imposing structures and disciplines because we are a business family and we need to go a bit beyond just being a social group and therefore we need to put these things in place. And if we do it, we're in with a reasonable chance that we can survive through generations because we'll just keep doing it, get better at doing it. Without it, it's uh, you're trusting to luck and that hope is, as they say, not really a strategy. You're also needing to, try to teach courageous conversations about yes. having being tough on issues and soft on relationships yeah. as opposed to just destroying the relationships by having a bad conversation. And, we and that links very much into the trust. We yeah. say strong ideas lightly held. Exactly you know? right. Yep. Yeah. Good. Jason, you've been quiet. Do you have a uh, question or a contribution? Um, the, the word, not your muzzle, but the word that we find comes to the surface a lot, especially in families, is sabotage. Yeah. So they either will sabotage themselves or their, their family members, and that's part of the backstabbing that we talked about. I think Ed mentioned it. Um, so dealing with that, I think, through a more disciplined process, as you said, John, is, is easily solved. But there is a tendency in family to sabotage each other. We're in a corporate environment, you're less likely perhaps to, to do it because there's consequence. Um, so that's one thing that I've probably observed to, to tackle that. Um, I did find it interesting how the conversation opened up about leadership and there not being necessarily a difference just because it's a female or a male. And I think that partly does come down, you know, most of us have had careers in a corporate environment and if you're given the same opportunity, you had the same talent and the same skill learning, you, you probably were able to use your personality type to lead the way you wanted, irrespective of male or female. But I think it was brought up before and I was reminded sitting down with a large family last Friday and the the background was five siblings. Yeah, the two sons um, were in the one was in the business, one wasn't, but both were going to inherit the ownership of it. Yeah, that today still happens. So we're going in to tackle it um, because one of the brothers has sort of come to an aha moment that that's not necessarily the right thing to do. Um, so opportunity um, to, to lead or opportunity given to develop their leadership skill. So it, that's where I think that the weakness is um, in terms of I've seen some amazing strong female entrepreneurs family business owners, um, and not all created equal. You know, I've got a very large family group that has two sisters. Um, one is very well suited to running the business and the other has sabotaged the business from the day the father died. Um, so that's the, the best example I can see. You know, one wanted out and wanted to take the check. The other one wanted to continue it and fought, you know, bankers and multiple CEOs to, to create a um, billion-dollar turnover business. So so it is the strength of character. So I don't think it's necessarily um, 
female or male, but we definitely do have some unconscious biases and the father figures, matriarch, patriarchs, don't necessarily give the same opportunity to all siblings, do they? Get the truth. No, and that, and just to build on that, Jason, and I know you've seen this because it's probably some of the same people that we know, where it's, you know, the dads and the brothers and the cousins are sitting around the investment committee table and the women are, you know, doing the philanthropy and the two shall never mix. That's yeah, very much, that is very, very common. I feel like that's that's almost the default. It's the women running the foundations and I, I sit on so many uh, philanthropic trusts and, yes, it's mostly the women in the family involved in that. I think, and, and which is crazy because then the corpus is actually the decisions around corpus, and I'm I'm not going to talk a lot about it because it's a bit of a soapbox issue for me. But decisions around corpus are not made by the people making the decision on the distributions, and it's often the the men in the family deciding how the money is invested and the women how it's going to get given away. And it's interesting, Louis. I mean, I chair um, Maddie's Vision, which is a medical research organisation to try and find a cure for bone marrow failure syndrome. Um, and my experience in well, over 15 years or so in, in that part of the, the for-profit sector is that 90% of the CEOs of for-profit, not-for-profits are, are women. Mm. Um, uh, what I would say about the investing side of things, in my experience in the last 15 years in investment, is that um, I would say females make um, better investors in a lot of situations than men and the reason I say that is because women are happy to say what they don't know and ask questions and generally us blokes are not. Oh, wash your mouth out. <laughs> uh, you know what, Ed, on that, I'd like to say that I, I'd like to think that's the case. I think it, in, it's so much about, and this is the area that I work in, it's so much who the advisors are and whether they kind of allow f- for questions. Yeah. And whether they um, set that tone where it's I'm giving you some information and some advice and I don't expect you to know everything. So mm-hmm. ask me anything as a, I mean, I've had so many people say, What's it? Why does that guy keep saying equities and stocks and bonds are they separate categories of things? You know, there's so much around that. That's a whole separate conversation around language and the way I think mm-hmm. gender you, people use language. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lillian, by the way, I think we will give you a soapbox to run your own session at some time in the future. Love I think it'll box. be a lively be careful, be careful what you what you threaten to give me. Uh, <laughs> just, just go with the flows, what it's all about. <laughs> um, Mike, uh, any comments from yourself? The beauty of having sat here and used my two ears and listened is the clear observation that as humans, we're all different. Our different belief systems and our different ways in which we communicate. So the difficulty is having a common language. When we then combine that with perceived prejudices of whether or not one gender or another is better or less equipped at um, certain roles, I think we're putting our own biases forward in, in trying to say that people should act in a certain way or behave in a certain manner. But what comes out from my experience is that if I look at the emotional managers as between male and females, in my experience, females are far better 
emotional managers, not only of their own, but then of those around them. Um, but I often see that they do that in a background where suited. Um, and therefore, when we look at the dysfunction, and, and I think there's a lot of dysfunctional families, um, and, and that's borne by Australia's great statistic of relationship breakdowns, and it's only increasing, that to then put dysfunctional people in business where people perhaps behave even differently, and I think it's fair to say that anybody that's in a business role, their performance in that role is going to not necessarily be mirrored perfectly in a home environment. But if you put the families together in businesses, I think there's recipes for uniquenesses that require a very um, adaptable advisor because I don't think there's any one-size-fits-all other than just the fluid role in which you've got to be to identify, well, where are the power bases within a family dynamic? Um, sabotage, I think, is a big component of that um, because people will always like to play the stereotypical one's a rescuer, one's a victim, and I think that's how relationships are born. And um, it's trying to identify those roles within the family and therefore within business to come up with different strategies. And uh, the things like the, the, the DSM 3, 4, and 5 is, is so valid. I think they're just other tools for our toolboxes that we need to have so that we can try and identify what are the personality types that you're trying to deal with. Um, and there may be some who you've just got to say, well, that's a project that can't be advanced <laughs> because they don't want to advance things. Had a few of those. So it's the, the, the rich tapestry of of business and families that provides, I think, the unique opportunity. Indeed. Thank you. Well said. Scott, closing comments. I think Mike uh, summed that up pretty well, actually. <laughs> uh, I said he's so excited about the opportunity. Uh, in this mixture of family and businesses, whether it's an individual or whether it's a family group or a complex family group, uh, to have, uh, you know, a, for want of a better word, an agile advisor who's got an eclectic skill set. You know, so you're not coming from legal or wealth or accounting. You're coming in with a, you know, a whole kit bag of skills around emotional intelligence, relationship management. Uh, you can explain different concepts. Uh, and I always think about what's the problem we're trying to solve here, and I think it's two or threefold. I think one's always the individuals or the family don't know where they're trying to get to. And I reckon that's got to be the start point, and that's that, you know, helping them work out their committed future, not my committed future for them. It's like you tell me, you know, if we can get clear about where we're trying to get to, I'm happy to help you. But let's have that as the start point. If we can't agree on that, well, we need to keep working out until we can get clear on that. So I'm really excited about that, you know, concept of becoming a sounding board for people or sounding board for families, which then leads to the whole, you know, family advisory board piece of the 
piece of the puzzle that it, it can merge into. So there are more comments. Thanks, John. Thank you. Any closing comments from anybody? Ross, anything from the Sykes couch? <laughs> no, look, that's all good stuff. No, I, it's, a, it's a very complex area, and I certainly echo Scott's comments about it's a team approach. I mean, on, on your own, it's, uh, it's just it's overwhelming. But, yes, it is addressing all those issues, uh, and hence the forum for I like this uh, are so good. So thank you. I do have to make a move, so I'm going to wait for yeah. you to wrap up, John, then I forget. We're wrapping up now. I'd like to thank you all. Um, I uh, uh, I enjoyed ventilating my uh, observations and concerns. I'm still on a pathway to trying to find some answers, um, but I look forward to trying to uh, work them out with uh, some or all of you into the future. So thank you for giving up your time this evening. And we'll uh, probably have another one of these in a couple of months' time. And if you have any suggestions uh, for anything on a soap or off a soapbox, uh, please put it through and we'll make it happen. And hopefully we'll have some more people next time. Thanks a lot. And I'll send the recording around um, probably in a couple of weeks' time when I, I get back from leave. Fantastic. Thanks, John. Good night, all. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.